Back in my single days, going out on the first date could be scary. And one of the reasons it could be really scary for me was that I knew the question was going to be asked. What do you do for a living? And when I responded with, I'm a history teacher, inevitably, the response back would be, oh, I hated history. Welcome to your parent-teacher conference, where a 24-7 parent and full-time teacher discusses issues and concerns from both points of view in an attempt to bridge the gap for the sake of kids. So relax, grab a coffee or other comfort drink, and let's talk about it. Hello and welcome to your parent-teacher conference. This is Coach Cullen, your host. Today's episode, we are going to talk about the purpose of history education. And, and there's a lot I can say here. This could be an hours-long podcast, but I'm going to specifically look at one issue. And again, as always, if you like what you hear, I really would encourage you to share this with a friend, share the link, share the tweet you probably saw this on, or the Facebook post. I'd really appreciate it. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future podcasts, please feel free to reach out to me at ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. Now, from our introduction, you're probably wondering then, how did you ever get married if you were always faced by that response? It's because the woman I married had the best response. And she said this, I hated history. But I may have felt differently if you were my teacher. Why is it? Why do people have such a disgust of history class? And being honest, it seems that most people who have a love of history... They love World War II. In fact, I teach early modern world history from about the year 300 to 1700. And the number one topic I always get asked if we could do a lesson on is World War II. It seems that if you love history, you love World War II in the United States. Why is that? Why is World War II the favorite topic of most people who have taken a U.S. history course. And I'm going to tell you, because I think it's quite simple. World War II is phrased as a fight between good and evil. Think about all the stories that you've heard growing up. And I'm not talking history. I'm talking fairy tales, stories that you've read. You go from hearing about Cinderella and her evil stepmother, and her evil stepsisters. You have the forces of good, led by the fairy godmother. And in the end, the triumph of good, as the prince puts the glass slipper on Cinderella's foot. Perhaps from there, you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And 
you had the evil presented in the white witch and the hope for good triumphing over the white witch coming in Aslan. And what do we have in World War II? We have Hitler and the Axis powers representing evil, the Holocaust, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and the Allied forces representing good, the invasion of Normandy, and the eventual defeat of the Axis powers. World War II plays out like the great epics stories that are found in all cultures. The only difference is that this epic story is true. There are other historical events that can be portrayed the same way, but for some reason, World War II captures the imagination. But sadly, I think that most history education is done as just events that you need to know. There's nothing linking those events together, making an overall purpose for the history that you're learning. And because of that, students lose focus. They don't sense an urgency to learn about these people and events, only if they make some personal connection to it. Hey, we all have a disgust of learning dates. In fact, I have never had my students remember dates. But as my history professor in college used to say, to know history, you do need to have a relative understanding of dates. He wasn't a big date person either. He would say that dates of events are like hangers in a closet when you're organizing your closet. It helps you place events near other events so you can see the trends. You can understand how one influenced the other or played off the other or created conflict with the other. For example, I think a history teacher needs to take the year 1453. And if you're not a history major, you probably don't know what happened in 1453. That was the year that Constantinople fell. It ended what we call the Byzantine Roman Empire and the Ottoman Turks established control there. In the next hundred years in Western Europe, you're going to have the Renaissance, the Reformation, and Columbus sailing to the Americas. And if you do a dive in history, you can see how the fall of Constantinople influenced those events. Ideas from the Greeks and Romans were taken by scholars in Constantinople as they fled to the West, to Western Europe. It sparked the ideas of the Renaissance. It connected Western Europeans with the Greek versions of the Bible rather than the Latin Vulgate that was being used by the Roman Catholic Church. In a sense, it sparks a look back in history for the Renaissance to the forms of the ancient Greeks and Romans, for the Reformation to the early Christian Church. And as the Ottomans now controlled the trade routes to Asia, countries like Portugal and Spain were looking for new ways to tap into the Indian Ocean without having to deal with the Ottoman Turks. So that's briefly how they all connect. But if you learn them as separate events, 
you never see the richness of how the one event influenced the others. It doesn't give you purpose. It doesn't give you meaning. And thus, history becomes meaningless. One of the most influential books I've ever read when it comes to teaching history is this little book called The Disuniting of America, Reflections on a Multicultural Society by Arthur Schlesinger Jr. Now, you may have heard Arthur Schlesinger's name if you know anything about the Kennedy administration. He was a special advisor to President Kennedy. He won two Pulitzer Prizes. He was a history professor. You should get a copy if you don't have one. It's only about, it's an easy read. It's only about 150 pages, south of, just south of 150 pages long. And even though it was written 30 years ago, it makes some valid points about where we are going as a society. You know, today we hear all this talk about critical race theory, anti-racism, but back in the early 90s, if you were a teacher, the term was multiculturalism. And Schlesinger's fear of this type of education was that it was going to reduce Americans from being Americans into their special interest groups. That their special interest groups, their identity groups as we call them today, would be more important than trying to find out what unites us as Americans. Very prophetic, if you ask me. Now, when I used to teach U.S. history, I would begin every year talking about this very fact. Is George Washington only a hero to white people and Martin Luther King Jr. only a hero to black people? And I would say, no, they are heroes to all of us as common humanity, as the fact that they're both human, and that they're both Americans. Does that mean we excuse the fact that Washington was a slaveholder? No, it doesn't mean we excuse anything, but we look at the things that he did well, the things that we want to be proud of. We look to Martin Luther King Jr. and his stand for civil rights, his call for people being judged by their character and not the color of their skin. And we learn that with pride because he is an American. But the cry would come out. But you didn't have Dr. King's experiences. You're right. I didn't. I do not know the discrimination, sometimes verbal, sometimes physical, that he faced. But even though I'm white, I don't know the experiences of George Washington. I don't live in the 1700s. I don't own a huge plantation. His life is his life and his experiences are very different than mine too. You know, if you do ask somebody what is the purpose of learning history, they always shoot back some form of the George Satayana quote. Those who don't remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Yet if you're saying I can't learn anything or understand anything, because I don't share similar experiences from the people I am studying, or that in some way I can relate it to my life and internalize it, then I can't remember the past. We've all had successes. We've all had failures. We've all had obstacles placed in our path, some to greater degree than others, but we've all faced them. But if you're going to say, I can't know anything unless I experienced it, 
from that person, then guess what? You're not going to be able to learn anything because we all have different experiences. I mean, I have faced bias myself to the extent of Dr. King and other black Americans in this country. Absolutely not. But to say I can't learn how to react when a bias is presented to me from Dr. King or or the evil that can manifest when bias becomes discrimination. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, you don't know. You've never experienced it. You won't understand. You, you never experienced to the extent because you're a white male in America. If that's what you're thinking, I want you to think about this. Who's acting out of bias now? So in the beginning of the school year, when I taught U.S. history, I would say, the people in American history are Americans. You're an American. You need to know about these people. I never shied away from talking about the things in American history that we got wrong. That's an important part of the story as well. But to make it seem like the United States is uniquely evil among the nations is also a fallacy. Like I said, I teach world history, so we're getting into slavery, into transatlantic slavery. And it was probably the first time my students ever needed to look at transatlantic slavery outside of the United States. So I created this little video where I explained to them how did African slavery begin. We talked about it, you know, kind of like everywhere else in the world there was slavery. It happened within people in proximity to each other, one tribe getting more powerful than the other and enslaving them. Then as the Arab traders came in, the, the African slaves became a commodity to trade with the Arabs. And then as the Portuguese and Spanish came to Africa, they saw this and they continued on to provide labor in their colonial holdings. And then we did talk about how the British got involved and it led to slaves coming to North America and eventually to the United States. Now, I ended the story there. I didn't go deep into the United States because that's not my purview of history. It, it ends with colonization. And in U.S. history, the following year, my students will pick up that story. But I asked a question off of the video. And the question was, what country imported the most African slaves. And as I asked the question, after the video was over, several students in several classes would raise their hand and say, the United States. And I said, no, that, that wasn't even said in the video. In fact, I, I went back in one of the classes, I was like, I went back to the scene where I had put a graphic map that showed how many slaves were transported to the different areas. And I said, the United States was half a million. Brazil was 4.5 million. It's nine times the amount as the United States. It's, it's, I, in fact, I even said that. Not only did you see it visually, but I actually said that on the video. How did you get that wrong? And the reason I think we they got it wrong is that's all they heard. Yes. You have to point out that the United States traded in slaves, that we continued the slave trade 
long after countries like Great Britain had ended it. But it would be untruthful to only present it from the United States point of view because that just, it's not true. You know, a few weeks ago on Twitter, I posted this. I believe parents sending their students to a U.S. public school would want U.S. history focused on that the United States is a land of opportunity rather than the land of oppression. My biggest pushback was from history teachers. One pushback was the infamous straw man argument. Oh, so you only want to teach that America does nothing wrong. It's always right. No, no, that would be a lie. Uh, we all do things wrong. But at the same time, what are we comparing it to? Like, what are we pairing, comparing the United States to? If we're comparing it to perfection, that's like comparing it to a fantasy story. Where in the world is there perfection? Then I get, well, now you want to teach whataboutism. No, I don't want to teach whataboutism. I'm not saying that, well, they did it, so the United States should do it too. That's whataboutism. Uh, what I am saying is you need to be truthful. If you want to be bring out the truth and say you need to teach where the United States has gone wrong, well, that's true. But not at the expense of saying we never did anything right. You know, I went to middle school in the 70s, and I have to be honest, from the 70s onward, I always heard the problems, you know, the United States doing questionable acts. I remember in middle school, it's in middle school that I learned that basically Hawaii came about because a banana company, I believe it was banana or sugar, right? I can't remember now. I'm sorry, I'm a history teacher. It's embarrassing. Banana or sugar company basically invaded Hawaii and the United States annexed it after the fact. Was that right? No. Did my history teacher teach it to me? Yes. And that was, again, in the late 70s, early 80s. So to say that American U.S. history teachers are like passing out American flags every day and kids are waving them and they're only citing the perfect how we got it right moments in American history is a lie. It, it just doesn't happen. Now, there are people who just want to focus on the negatives, the oppressive moments in American history. And I think there are two types of history teachers who do this. The first type is genuinely concerned for students in their class that are minorities. They want to address their experiences, going back to experiences, they want to address them. They want to show empathy for them. And I get that. They're being compassionate human beings. But it's not compassionate to only present one side, to only present the negatives of the United States because there's no hope. Has the United States gotten things wrong? Yes. But we've also gotten things right. And when the Founding Fathers created this government, they created it with ideals to make it better, to make a more perfect union. Knowing that the reality of perfection will never be achieved by finite people with finite resources in a finite universe. And then there are those teachers who are on a mission. They question the Constitution, 
They question capitalism. There are some teachers in K through 12 who are flat out Marxists. They are doing it to create an overthrow of the system and shame on them. Because again, is that what parents are sending their kids to school for? Are they sending their kids to school to become little activists, little rebels? I mean, if you want to teach that in your home, that is fine. But again, it's an American school and it should be upholding the principles of the Constitution rather than attacking it. And the fact that there are history teachers out doing this, it's really a shame. It's as if they've never learned any lessons from these radical changes, such as that occurred during the French Revolution or the Chinese Cultural Revolution. How many people died at the expense for what the people who were oppressing and murdering people, they thought that they were doing it for good. They were making a change, and these people were resistant to change. Now, during the French Revolution, don't get me wrong, absolute monarchy sucks. But the reign of terror, the absolute monarchy was over. Same with the Cultural Revolution. Mao had been in power for over a decade when he implemented the Cultural Revolution. And these teachers who want this radical change for America to, up, to throw upheaval into the system... It just comes from a place of pure arrogance that they can achieve what these others try to achieve without the radicalism, with, in peaceful methods in the schoolhouses. But again, do most people send their children to public school to learn that the United States is a land of opportunity or a land of oppression, especially if the concept of the land of oppression is to reformulate other people's kids' minds against the one thing that really unites us, the Constitution, the ideals that built this country. There is no nationality, no ethnicity, no race that combines us as Americans. The only thing that unites us is living by promoting and making sure our leaders rule by the ideals found in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And part of doing that is to hold our nation's leaders accountable when they are not. I'll end with this. In his book, the Disuniting of America, Dr. Schlesinger introduced me to a word that I had never heard before, and it was balkanization. His point was this. If the United States, if the people, the citizenry of the United States continued only to be concerned about their special interest group at the expense of others, we would wind up like the many different ethnic groups on the Balkan Peninsula. For those of you who don't know your geography, the Balkan Peninsula is north of Greece. Kind of think of Yugoslavia, across from Italy to its west and 
Turkey to its east. For centuries, the many different ethnic groups that made up the Balkan Peninsula were in conflict. And in fact, it started World War I. If you remember your history from World War I, Austria-Hungary, who was trying to keep all these ethnic groups together, sent the Archduke Franz Ferdinand down for a tour in Sarajevo, where he was assassinated, and that was the spark that caused World War I. After World War I, the country of Yugoslavia was formed, trying to bring all these ethnic groups together under one rule, one country. And that lasted for about 70 years, until the 1990s, where we see the breakup of Yugoslavia. And again, the ethnic rivalries reestablish themselves, spilling over into war, and the Serbians going after the Croats and the people of Bosnia-Herzegovina. If you've never seen it, I would highly recommend an ESPN 30 for 30 called Once Brothers about the Yugoslavian national team of the 19th basketball team of the 1980s. And it focuses on the relationship between two men, Vlade Divac and Drazen Petrovic, and how that relationship ended with the breakup of Yugoslavia and the ethnic warfare that was going on between the Serbs and the Croats. It was a great documentary. And this is what Dr. Schlesinger feared for the United States, a balkanization 30 years ago. If the classrooms where your children are attending are promoting everything that divides us rather than anything that unites us, then Dr. Schlesinger's thoughts will become prophecy. Do you really want the balkanization of America. Thank you for joining me on the Parent Teacher Conference podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this podcast with friends. They can be teachers, they can be parents, they can be someone who's just interested in education and parenting. If you have a comment, a question, or an idea for a future topic, please feel free to reach out to me at ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. Remember, a good teacher cares deeply for their students, but good parents love those students, their children, deeply.